Wabarakatuh. Can someone give me a mic check, please? Let's make sure everyone can hear me. So welcome to um, our next lesson for QP, Quranic Progression, Year 3. And we're currently uh, doing the tafsir of Surah Al-Alaq, which we started properly last week. So the week before last, we did an introduction into the Surah. We went through like the names of the Surah and and some of the other issues regarding the surah. And last week we, we touched upon some of those as well in some more detail. Uh, some of the questions that we had and the one that particularly pertained to this surah was concerning uh, it being the first revelation. Right? And we mentioned that some of the scholars said it's surah Fatiha, and others said it is surah Al-Muddathir, uh, which, which was also reported on Jabir an. And we mentioned how some of the scholars uh, reconciled between those opinions of it being surah Al-Alaq and Surah Al-Muddathir and they said that Surah Alaq was the first revelation as in the first time the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam received revelation and Jabir radiallahu an's narration of it being Surah Al-Muddathir refers to the period after revelation ceases so we know that revelation stopped as I mentioned the hadith in Bukhari of Aisha radiallahu anha and in Arabic it's called Fatratul Wahi Fatra means a gap right so there's a gap in revelation and then the Prophet received revelation again. That first revelation would then be Surah Muddathir. That's how some of the scholars reconcile between those two narrations. And Allah knows best. But it is in, uh, the vast majority of the scholars, as we said, held the position and still hold the position that it is uh, Surah Al-Alaq that is the first revelation. Uh, so that's regarding that particular issue that we discussed last week. And then we went on to the beginning of Surah Al-Alaq and we discussed the first verse and we more or less spent uh, you know, the majority of that lesson speaking about the importance of that first word with which revelation began and that word being the word Iqra, the command to read and to learn and to educate and to seek knowledge and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began our religion with that command and we went through a number of different tangents concerning that and some of them will still come uh, you know, towards the end of this, uh, these first five verses, which were part of the first revelation, uh, Ibn Qayyim Taala has some nice uh, words and others as well that speak about this issue of generally speaking about knowledge. And knowledge is, is as we will see over these few verses, is mentioned in different forms within these first few verses. So one of those forms of knowledge is reading, right? And that reading uh, is either because you've read something which is written or you're reading from something which you heard in the sense that you hear something and then you repeat it, right? In Arabic, that is also a type of reading, which is the verbal, oral type of uh, tradition that we know that our Qur'an is based on, right? The, the learning of the Qur'an and the study of the Qur'an in terms of its recitation and its tajweed has always been an oral tradition. And even, let's be frank, the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, the sunnah, up until the time of uh, you know, Imam Malik and then subsequently after him, uh, Imam Ahmad and then the you know, Bukhari and Muslim and so on even the narration of hadith was an oral t- tradition right they used to narrate a hadith to uh, to one another and that's why it's not something which you know it said that one of the first to ever write down hadith in terms of compiling it uh, was uh, Imam al-Zuhri rahimahullah ta'ala Umar ibn Abdul Aziz rahimahullah the Khalifa of that time and a scholar in his own right he's the one who, who uh, impressed upon Imam al-Zuhri Rahimahullah, that he should 
collect some hadith or write them down into some type of book form. Before that, it wasn't something which was done. It was always an oral tradition. And so the Qur'an and the Sunnah, Qur'an and Hadith have always had that oral tradition behind them. And even until our time today, the recitation of the Qur'an and the reading of books of Hadith to scholars who then will give you an ijazah is still an oral tradition in that sense because the reading is different to the writing just as the recitation of the Qur'an requires for you a sheikh and a teacher who will help you and, and guide you towards how to recite the Qur'an correctly. It's not just something which you can pick up even if you knew the rules of Tajweed to be able to implement them unless you have that fine tuning and that fine ear of a teacher helping you and guiding you. It's not something which you can do. And likewise the books of the Sunnah. The books of the Sunnah when it comes to their reading is not just the way it is written. But the scholars of hadith have a methodology of how they wrote their works of hadith and therefore the way it is read is somewhat different. If any of you have ever uh, attended a reading of hadith, whether that be a reading um, of, of uh, Bukhari or Muslim or any other book, you will notice this when they go through the chains of narration and when they read the text of the hadith, there is a certain manner in which it is, it is read. So that's uh, what we discussed last week. So inshallah ta'ala today we go on to verse number 2. And in verse number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, He created man from a clinging form. Right? He created man from a clinging form. One of the things uh, that I wanted to do, if you give me a moment, was I wanted to look at the different translations uh, that, the, the, that we have for the word alaq, right? after which the surah is named. So let me just very quickly open up. Uh, open up a couple of these translations that I have. So we have four here. I think that's that's more or less enough. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Sahih International created man from a clinging substance. Uh, Muhsin Khan has created man from a clot and then in brackets a piece of thick coagulated blood. Abdul Harim he created man form from a clinging form. And Mufti Taqi he created man from a clot of blood. So very similar in terms of the translation. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ عَلَقَ So in verse number one, where we left it, Allah azza wa jal said, read in the name of your Lord who created. And that creation is general, right? That creation is everything that Allah azza wa jal created. The heavens, the earth, the trees, the sun, the moon, everything that Allah azza wa has created. And part of that creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is so vast is the creation of humans. Then Allah Azza wa specifies خَلَقَ insan, And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifies from the general creation of all of his creations, he specifies the creation of mankind. خَلَقَ insan, And then he specifies the creation of man further and he specifies the form by which it began and that is the alaq. Right? That is the alaq that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to. So you have a general term that is specified and then further specified again. So you start off very generic creation that includes everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything besides Allah azza wa is the creation of His. Then it's specified to a single species and that is the humans. And then it is specified further in terms of the beginning form or one of the early stages of their formation and that is the alaq, right? The clinging form. And Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he said Allah azza wa mentions creation. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he created man and he created them from alaq. And he says alaq, يعني الدم, a, a, a blood clot, min alaq. And alaq, he says, is the plural for alaqah. Right? In the Quran, in other places, Allah azza wa refers to 
man and the creation as being from alaqa. Ya nas, as in, in Surah Hajj, for example, Ya nas, in kuntum fi raibin min al-ba'd, fa inna khalaqnaakum min turabin, thumma min nutfatin, thumma min alaqatin. Alaqa, with the ta at the end, is with a is the singular form of the word, and alaq, with that the ta at the end, is therefore the plural. And so the scholars say, because Allah Azzawajal mentions insan, which is the species of man, it's many. Allah Azzawajal mentions the plural form of alaq as well. Alaqa, which is alaq. Right, the plural form of alaqa. Uh, and similar to it is shajara and shajar. Right, shajara means tree. Its plural is shajar. And others as well. Other similar terms in the Arabic language as well. Sheikh uh, Muhammad al-Amin, rahimahullah ta'ala, he, and we did this last week where we went through nine different points that he uh, derived and deduced in terms of benefits from the first five verses of Surah Al-Alaq. And we mentioned four of them last week as they pertained to verse number one. In verse number two, Allah, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, he mentions a number of other points. The first of them is that Allah Azza wa Jal, when he says, خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ alaq, He created man from an alaq, this uh, blood form. He says that this is Allah Azza wa giving a detail after Allah Azza wa mentioned something very general. And that is that we know that every single human is created from this type of alaq. So he mentions something which is general, as we said before, and then Allah Azza wa mentions something which is, uh, which is more specific. And he says he does this because this is something which people understand, right? and it's something which they can accept, meaning that they can physically around them see the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you're not going to have people denying that there are in existence things, right? Things that are around them that are existing. No one's going to deny that. Humans, trees, animals, those things exist, so no one will deny them. So Allah Azza uses that which man can see, which man can sense, which man can hear, which man can experience to show uh, to show its favor. He says, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and the mention of man, of humans, after mentioning creation in general, so in verse number one, uh, uh, read in the name of your Lord who created, which is the general term, creation includes everything. Allah Azza then specifies man. He says it is to further ennoble mankind, right? It is to honor them. It is to show their status. Just as, as we mentioned in Surah Al-Qadr, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, تَنَزَّلُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ وَالْرُوحِ When Allah says that the angels descend and the ruh, which is the spirit of Jibreel alayhi salam, it is to further give honor and status to Jibreel alayhi salam over and above the rest of the angels. So likewise, Allah Azza wa mentions his creation, then Allah is now favoring humans from amongst them, right, amongst them. As Allah mentions elsewhere in the Quran in Surah Al-Isra, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي Adam. Indeed, we have honored favored the children of Adam. Right? And that's everyone, all of them, irrespective of if they're uh, believers or disbelievers. Even before we get to the issue of Islam and Iman and belief and worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the human race in general is one that has been honored by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And how has Allah Azza wa favored them? This is some of or some of the things that Allah Azza wa is highlighting in this surah from his uh, beneficence, from his benevolence for us as a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that Allah Azza specified us above all of his other creation. And one of the ways that he specified us and chose us and selected us is by giving us the ability of having that free will, right? Which the vast majority of Allah's creation 
do not have other than the humans and the jinn. And that is why when Allah says to everything in the heavens and the earth and everything in between glorifies your Lord. And there is nothing except that it glorifies the praises of your Lord. But you do not understand their praise and their glorification. Humans and jinn, we're not part of that because we have free will. And so if we were to hear and see that, it would be something which takes away the element of the test that Allah has placed upon us. And likewise, the Prophet told us وسلم, when he was speaking about the punishment of the grave, from the things that he said is when a person in their grave, the disbeliever is struck and they scream in their grave. It is a scream that all of Allah's creation hears with the uh, exclusion of humans and jinn. Right? All of them hear that scream except the humans and the jinn. The point being here is that Allah specifies humans from his creation, just as in Surah Al-Qadr, Allah specifies Jibreel from and above the angels of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah when he says min alaq, my alaq is a it is when the uh, the body forms into or the, the sperm rather goes on to the next stage and it forms into a type of congealed or coagulated blood form, right? And this is the meaning of the word alaq. It is like a, a substance, a clinging uh, form, but it is still, it looks, and, and it looks like a type of congealed blood. That is the form that it is mentioned here. Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, and then Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin will, will elaborate further on this. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, and the question here, sorry, before we go on to that is, uh, we mentioned that Allah Azza wa favors Bani Adam, right? So the question can be here, and one of the reasons we said why Allah Azza wa favors Bani Adam is because they have free will, because Allah Azza wa has given them this opportunity to learn and to seek knowledge and thereby come to worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obeying Him. But the same can surely be said about the jinn, right? The jinn, as we know, also have free will, as we know they are also uh, told to seek knowledge and to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to obey him and to have tawheed. So why doesn't Allah azza wa mention them? Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically or specify only the human race? Right? Who can tell me? Someone can type in and tell me. Why? Why doesn't Allah azza wa mention both? Because elsewhere in the Quran Allah azza wa does mention both. Right? Like in Surah Ar-Rahman, in other places of the Quran when Allah azza wa is saying Ya ma'ashar al-jinni wal-ins when Allah Azzawajal is referring to the people of the jinn and uh, the humans and the jinn, right? Allah says He will fill up the fire of hell with both humans and jinn. So in many places of the Quran, Allah Azzawajal does use the dual for these two creations, right? Of the humans and the jinn because they are similar in terms of that uh, that part. So why doesn't Allah Azzawajal mention, uh, mention it here? Why does Allah Azzawajal only refer to humans? Samira says the Prophet didn't know about the jinn at the time when the wahi started. Okay, Hamza, is it because the belief of jinn is not yet established? Okay, so that's like a similar, uh, a similar answer. Who else can give me something? Something else, something to do with the theme of this surah, right? Something to do with what we're speaking about, which I think is a more, uh, it is a more apparent answer and a more clear answer than what you're mentioning. Right, because uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have mentioned the jinn, right? Even even uh, because it's not uh, you know, even though the narrations about the jinn are yet to come, but Allah Azza wa Jal could have informed the Prophet at this stage. Why doesn't he mention it at this stage? 
Rashida, maybe because jinn are descendants of Iblis, uh, Sumeru, you can't see them. Warda, Adam was bowed down to by the angels, Majid. Maybe Allah favored the humans above the jinn, especially because the prophets were always humans. Jazakallah khair Majid. That's what I was looking for. Because this surah is focusing on a sing- single element, right? And that is the element of, of uh, revelation that's being given. That revelation is given to who? It is given to prophets and messengers. Who are the prophets and messengers? So Majid says here, because the prophets were always humans. And this is the research question that I have for you today, which is an interesting research question. And I want you to look into it. And I also want you to tell me the evidences that each side has. And that is that in our Sharia, or in our in our tradition, our religion, do we believe that prophets were always human? In other words, can there have been or were there prophets from the jinn? Did Allah Azza wa send prophets from the jinn? So if the jinn are also told to worship Allah, they're commanded to worship Allah Azza wa they're commanded to obey Him and stay away from His disobedience, and then based upon that, they will be either rewarded or punished respectively. Were there prophets that Allah sent from the jinn to the jinn? Right? Because the Prophet sent, as we know, was sent to everyone. But what about before the Prophet Did Allah Azza wa send prophets to the jinn? Right? So not after the Prophet, because he is the final messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam But what about before him? Right? And I want you to look And this is something which you will find even in the books of Tafsir Because it comes to a number of verses Not necessarily directly what we're, stu- what we're studying now But in other parts of the verses Like in, in Suratul, uh, Suratul Jinn Or when Allah Azawajal speaks about the coming of the Jinn With Sarafna ilayka nafaram minal jinn al-Quran Those verses of the Quran You will find this discussion there so if you look at what Al-Qurtubi says, and Ibn Kathir says, and others, and look at the difference of opinion, number one, but why that difference of opinion exists as well. Right? That's a, it's an interesting question that, inshallah ta'ala, we will look at next week, bi ta'ala. So that's one of the reasons, though, why Allah Azza wa is favoring humans and mentioning them exclusively here, because it refers to revelation. Right? And if we say that revelation, therefore, is exclusively something which belongs to the humans. Therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is only stressing the human race here. Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says here that this uh, address here, or what Allah Azza is speaking about here, is to establish Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence and his favors. So when Allah Azza begins by mentioning his existence, just as he begins by mentioning that for, for people to understand that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by mentioning the creation of humans from the part or from the stage that they can witness and see and know to exist. So for example, Allah Azza wa Jal, why the question here being why? Doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he says that he created man, insana min alaq, he created mankind from alaq, right? From this congealed type of blood form. The question is, aren't there stages that came before this? Right, don't we know in our Sharia that there are stages that come before this? Right, who can tell me what stage comes before the alaq in the creation of man? Right, what comes before that? So when Allah says, what comes before the alaq? Right, what does Allah tell us himself? Warda, very good, nutfa, right, which is the sperm drop. Nutfa is mentioned in the Quran. What about even before the nutfa? Right, there's a, a stage of creation. That can also be attributed to us to this. What are, what is that stage? What is the stage that comes even before that in terms of creation, in terms of the stages of creation, of the development of man? 
no, not necessarily the the soul, uh, because that's not something which you see. Right? It's not something which uh, which which is uh, specifically a, a creation, a stage of creation. And the soul comes afterwards anyway. The blowing of the spirit, as we know, comes after, as as is mentioned in the hadith. What I'm looking for is um, is uh, soil, right? Clay, min turab. Allah Azza wa says. Uh, in Surah Hajj Allah begins with Turab who was created from that clay form our father Adam السلام, so it is the first stage of creation and then Allah says min nutfa, right? min alaq. Allah begins with Turab the question that Ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala, is answering here is why doesn't Allah say he says because Allah is showing us two things here number one that he is the creator, and we are his creation. And number two, how he favored his creation with knowledge, and with the knowledge especially of revelation. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins the issue of creation with a part that people can witness, can see themselves. How do they see this? Because on the odd occasion that a woman has a uh, you know a miscarriage or so on, they see that this is what emanates in terms of her miscarriage. So it's something which they understood existed. Whereas the nutfa, this is something which they knew about in terms of being able to physically see it with the naked eye. It's too small for them. And the Turab is something obviously that wasn't witnessed by anyone because it's in the creation of our forefather Adam salam. So Ibn Taymiyyah says that Allah begins with this stage that people, more people could have witnessed, more people understand. It's relatable to more people. And that's because Allah wants to show us the importance of this. Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin then extrapolates from this statement of Ibn Taymiyyah. And he says, and just how, just in, as, just in the same manner as Allah begins with the alaqa in the creation of man, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when it comes to the revelation that was given to the Prophet wasallam, he begins with the revelation of the Qur'an. Because the question is, weren't there forms of revelation that were given to the Prophet wasallam before this, uh, before the Qur'an was revealed? Right. Wasn't there a form of revelation? Who can tell me what form of revelation came to the Prophet ﷺ even before Jibreel ﷺ descended in Hira? Even before he came to the Prophet ﷺ and recited to him the opening verses of Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. Right, Aisha, very good dreams. Right, and that's, what, that's what's mentioned in the hadith of Aisha radiyallahu anha that we mentioned in, in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. She says, كان أول ما بدئ به الوحي الرؤية الصالحة The first stage of that the revelation came to the Prophet in was a true dream. Right? He saw true dreams, dreams that came and they saw they came to the Prophet. And the Prophet saw this over a period, it is said Shaykh Muhammad al mentions this, and I don't know if he took this from a hadith or if it's something which uh, he found elsewhere, Allahu Alam. He says that for about six months the Prophet saw this. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mention this. Why doesn't Allah say mention this as the first stage of revelation, even though it came before the revelation of the Quran? Because it's not something which is specific to the prophets of Allah. Other people's dreams can come true as well. As we know, as the Prophet told us وسلم, that it is one of the 46 parts of prophethood. Right? And so there are other people, right? Even now, there are people who you may see a dream and it comes true. So that is a portion, right, of one of the 46. doesn't make you a prophet, but it shows that it's something which other people can have as well. But the revelation of the Qur'an, Jibreel coming from the heavens, giving revelation, that's not something which other people are uh, party to. It is something specific to 
the prophets and messengers of Allah and so Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin takes a statement of Ibn Taymiyyah extrapolates on it so Allah begins with the alaq because it is the first thing that people can witness and see and understand especially in that time of the Quraysh and so for Allah likewise begins in terms of revelation with the Quran even though we know that the Prophet was seeing something uh, before this as well and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best so Allah begins in that way so in verse number 2 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the importance of his creation and look at how Allah begins with the Quran before creation even though the creation of man if you look at it chronologically comes before the revelation of the Quran Allah says Iqra' bismi read read what? read the revelation that Allah is revealing to you that revelation of the Quran from your Lord who created which one came first the revelation of the Quran or the creation of our father Adam chronologically speaking Allah began, uh, began with the creation of Adam before he revealed the Quran to our Prophet but Allah changes the order it's not done chronologically right? and that's an important thing to remember in terms of the Quran the Quran doesn't really speak in terms of chronologically Allah often orders things in terms of importance right? in terms of importance or there is another hikmah and wisdom behind it not necessarily chronology and so Allah begins with what is important because revelation, knowledge, especially the knowledge of the Quran and the Sunnah, revelation, knowledge of the revelation is more important than the creation of Adam. Right? Adam was created to worship Allah through that knowledge. And so the revelation and the knowledge that Allah gives is a greater blessing than simply people being created because there are people that are created from humans and jinn that don't worship Allah, that ignore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is something which you see in the Quran, right? That Allah Azza wa doesn't order things in, in chronology. And that's why amongst, you know, in those surahs where there is a mention of the stories of the Prophets, والسلام, you will see at times that Allah Azza wa doesn't always mention them chronologically, right? Even though we don't necessarily know for definite the chronology of all of the Prophets. But Allah Azza wa sometimes will mention the story of Lut before he mentions the story of Nuh. And sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the story of one prophet before he mentions the story of another prophet. Maybe Allah azza wa jal will mention, for example, the story of a number of the prophets before he mentions Ilyas. Right? As in Surah Safat, even though many of the scholars are of the view that Ilyas salam, is from the early prophets chronologically speaking. And Allah azza wa jal knows best. But the point being here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't order things necessarily in terms of, in terms of uh, chronology. When Allah begins in Surah Al-Baqarah with the stories of the Qur'an after the story of Adam السلام, it is next to the story of Musa السلام, that we have before Allah towards the end of the first juz speaks about Ibrahim السلام. It's not chronological, Ibrahim comes before Musa السلام. and so it is an issue of importance and likewise therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does the same thing here and likewise in Surah Al-Rahman when the same two concepts of revelation and creation are mentioned Allah begins with revelation, Ar-Rahman he is Ar-Rahman, the most gracious, the most merciful. He is the one who taught the Quran and he created mankind. Right? Even though the creation of mankind came before the teaching of, of the Quran. Right? And you see this uh, similarly in other places throughout the Quran. So this is also an important point to take from this particular surah. So Allah begins by mentioning his uh, the command to read and then Allah mentions revelation uh, creation the creation of man 
and then specifies that creation of man as having come from the alaq, that coagulated form of blood. In verse number three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, Iqra' wa rabbuka al-akram. There is a repetition of the same commandment. Read, your Lord is indeed the most generous. Right? Akram is the sigatul mubalagha for kareem. Kareem means one who is generous. Akram is the most generous. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Iqra' wa rabbuka al-akram. Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala in his, in his tafsir, he says that this is done to console the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it's as if that Allah is saying to him, continue to read. Because the first command the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as we know, is afraid when Jibreel alayhi sallam tells him a number of times to read and when he doesn't, he squeezes him. It is as if now the second time that Allah is commanding the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to read, he's now giving him the consolation, giving him the confidence, giving him the, uh, you know, the peace and serenity that he needs to continue, continue to read. For indeed your Lord is not like these other idols and gods that you see being falsely worshipped around you. But rather your Lord is the one who is most generous. And part of that generosity is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't leave his creation without guidance. Part of that amazing generosity, Allah being the most generous, is that Allah didn't leave us without knowing right from wrong, halal from haram, what pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from what displeases him and causes his anger and wrath. But rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us those tools, gave us the knowledge, gave us the information that we need in order to be able to come close to him subhanahu wa ta'ala, in order to be able to navigate through this dunya and this life and find that path that leads us to his pleasure, his mercy, his forgiveness, his reward subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is what Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala is saying. And this is also an important uh, element of seeking knowledge, right? Knowledge has to be um, something that, which, which shows which you know, from the benefits or the etiquettes of knowledge that we take from this surah is that issue of repetition. Because knowledge when it is first sought is difficult, takes time, right? When you, for example, start studying tafsir for the first time, maybe with us or elsewhere or hadith or fiqh, at the first stage, even though it may be exciting, there is a difficulty because it's a new concept or you're not used to studying classical texts or the methodology of studying Islam is different to when you were studying, I don't know, science or uh, English or whatever you were studying at university. And so the, the method changes and because of that change, it may be difficult. But Allah Azza wa tells us to continue, iqra again, read again, and it will become easier. Right? And we know in Surah Al-Qiyamah that the Prophet وسلم, often when Jibreel would come to him, he would be afraid that Jibreel would read to him the Quran and he would forget. So the Prophet would hasten in terms of repeating after Jibreel and Allah said, Don't hasten the movement of your tongue, meaning in repetition. Don't be hasty with it. We will gather the Quran for you and we will recite it for you. And so knowledge is taken slowly and is taken bit by bit, small portion at a time, and it's taken over a continuous amount of time. Right? Real students of knowledge, inshallah, like us, are the ones who do this week in, week out, day in, day out. They're not the ones who can only do it for a weekend in three, four months. They're not the ones who do it once every five months or once a year or once every two years. Those people, inshallah, they're still good in it. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't do what they're doing or that there's no benefit. But real students of knowledge, real knowledge isn't just acquired you know, once every so often. A real student of knowledge, just like a real, you know, anyone who's doing their professional, serious about their studies, it's a day-in, day-out slog. 
Right? Every day you're learning, every day you're reading, every day you're revising, every day you're improving. And that is how any type of knowledge that is serious and important is sought and learned. And so Allah gives that repetition here. So that's one etiquette. The second etiquette that we benefit from also and learn is from this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which denotes generosity. Why generosity? Why didn't Allah Azza wa Jal say, you know, read and your Lord is the most merciful, read and your Lord is the most knowing, the most knowledgeable, read and your Lord, because there are other names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that could have been mentioned here. And we will speak about the significance of this name of Allah Azza wa Jal, Al-Akram. But one of the etiquettes that we take from this is how in terms of, especially for the teacher and even the student, but the teacher as well, that in order for there to be a thriving group of students of knowledge, the teacher has to be generous. Right? You have to be generous. Generosity in terms of your time, generosity in terms of your effort, generosity in terms of the sacrifice that you make. And that is both for, these are both for the part of the student and the teacher, but sometimes it is more difficult for the teacher because you've learned what you've already learned and you study what you, and you maybe want to use that time elsewhere but you realize the importance of teaching others so that that legacy continues, that knowledge spreads, others benefit, and you get that reward from teaching that knowledge rather than always learning yourself but never spreading or sharing that knowledge. And that's why we see that one of the things that some of the scholars of the past used to do, alayhim rahmatullah, is that they would actually travel to different lands to read their narrations of hadith, for example, like some of the scholars of hadith, like Abu Dawood, Rahimahullah, the author of the Sunan, the compiler of the Sunan in, in Hadith, he actually would travel to different lands and narrate, read his book out to people because he wanted that knowledge to spread. So teaching is a good way of revising knowledge, but it's also something which requires a form of generosity. So generosity in terms of time, in terms of effort, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the sacrifice that you have to make, in terms of the patience that you have to have with the students, all of this requires generosity. And generosity in terms of being able to understand what your students are going through, the difficulties that they're facing, the challenges and obstacles that come in their path and helping them to overcome them to stay on that path of seeking knowledge, especially if amongst them you find students that are exceptional, students that are that are worthy of really seeking that knowledge, are worthy of your time and your sacrifice. Those students may be in a group of 100 or only three or four or five. They're a handful. But it is that handful of students that will then go on and continue that legacy, right? How many of the scholars of Islam did we see who from them, their students become great imams, right? And they are a product of their teachers. And that requires a generosity of spirit, it requires a, uh, a generosity in terms of patience and in terms of giving. And that's why you have those amazing relations from the Salaf, alayhim rahmatullah, when some of them would be seen after they passed away in a dream and they would be asked, you know, what saved you? What did Allah Azza wa which of your deeds did Allah use to forgive you? And they would say, it's because I would teach Qur'an to the young children, right, in my area, my neighbors, and teaching them Qur'an. Because perhaps some of those children grew up not just worshipping Allah Azza wa but they became scholars. And the beginning of their path of knowledge was them learning to read the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Qur'an, right? And from the scholars of, of, of recent times, I know from some of the scholars of Saudi Arabia, what they would do in the, you know, like a hundred or so years ago, is that they would go to the watering holes, right? This is where, you know, in Saudi Arabia, before the oil boom and, and modernization and stuff, where people in the desert would go to watering holes or wells, and they would take their cattle there, they would go themselves to draw water. And, and some of the scholars would sit there, so that when people came, they could teach them surahs of the Qur'an, teach them Fatiha, 
teach them ikhlas, teach them falaq nas because that's the only place that they could grab them. But they would actively go there to teach them because that is how they take that knowledge. So generosity is extremely important. You know, it's mentioned, uh, you know, from the most beautiful examples of this is the example of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala, with his, um, with his student, Abu Yusuf, right? Abu Yusuf al-Qadi. Abu Yusuf, rahimahullah, is perhaps the preeminent student of Abu Hanif rahimahullah ta'ala. He's probably his number one most famous preeminent student. Abu Yusuf rahimahullah ta'ala is the one who's credited with spreading the madhab and the fiqh of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. It said that Abu Yusuf rahimahullah ta'ala, and there's different narrations of this story. For example, the one mentioned by, uh, by Al-Dhahabi rahimahullah in his seer is that Abu, Sufi, uh, Abu Yusuf, when he was a young boy, he came from a very poor family. And so his father would tell him to go out and work, right? even though he's a young boy, but they needed money. Right? Just before education became widespread, it was very common for children, even of a young age of 8, 9, 10, that they would work for the day, and they would do some labor, and they would bring about whatever small amount of money or payment that they could, and they would put it into, even in the UK and in the West, like only you know, 150, 200 years ago before uh, a lot of these uh, modernization, a lot of the modernization came in, it was very commonplace for children not to have an education, not to study, not to learn, not to read, not to write, but rather to go and work for the day. So Abu Yusuf would be instructed by his father to go and learn. And Abu Yusuf, when he would pass by the sitting of Imam Abu Hanif, would be so amazed by that knowledge that he would sit there instead and learn. But then when he would go home, his father would become angry because he obviously hasn't bought in any money. He's not helping to provide for the family and the family are in dire straits. They're in need of money and food and so on. And so his father would become angry. So on one occasion, he told Imam Abu Hanifa, Allah Ta'ala, so Abu Hanifa gave him a hundred dirhams. Right? He gave him a hundred dirhams. And he said to him, use this to pay your father. Every day he asks, you give him one. Right? And when that hundred finishes, come back and I will give you another hundred. That's one version of the story. Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi, rahimahullah ta'ala, and there are other versions of this story as well. One of them is that Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala went to his parents' house, Abu Yusuf's parents' house, and he asked them, why don't you leave uh, Abu Yusuf to come and study with me? And he said, and the father or the mother said, because we don't have the luxury of him being able to go and study. We need him to bring in money. So he asked them, Abu Hanifa asked them, how much would he bring in? So they told him and he said, what if I pay you that same amount for him to come and study with me? Is that okay? And they said, yeah, as long as we get the money for our family and to live, then it's okay. And so that's what he did. He was paying for Abu Yusuf, and Imam Abu Hanifa was in that position to do so, paying for him to be able to go and study. That's amazing, right? To see in a child that type of potential, but also the confidence that is built within that child in terms of their enthusiasm to learn and to seek knowledge. And that's something which you know, brings me to this important point that we have to be very aware of, especially in the time that we're living in. Even though it's, it's changed somewhat, especially in the West, but it is still too commonplace to find that the people who go towards Islamic education full-time become our imams, become our sheikhs, become the people that are going to be our spiritual leaders as we move on, are often the people that are not necessarily the most able in terms of their academic abilities, in terms of their intelligence, in terms of their speaking abilities or their oratory. Because, you know, in some countries, for example, it's the people that can't become doctors, can't become engineers, can't do anything else. They go and become the imam, right? And some of that uh, thinking, some of that culture, some of that tradition has transferred itself, even though many of us have moved to other countries. We're living in the West, we're living in the US or Canada, wherever. It is still an issue. 
The question is, how do you change that? And the answer is found in the story of Imam Abu Hanifa Abu Yusuf. It's through support, not just knowledge support and so on, but financial support as well. And look at how Abu Hanifa is willing to invest in him. In the story of this, in the in the narration of, of this particular story that is mentioned by Imam by Khatib al Baghdadi in his Tariq Baghdad, he says that his father passed away, Abu Yusuf's father passed away when he was young. So his mother would send him to go and learn to become a tailor or some type of manual skill that he could use to in order to uh, take uh, bring in an income. And Abu Yusuf, when he would pass by the sitting of Imam, Ahmed, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, he would sit and he would learn instead. So his mother came one day to complain to Abu Hanifa and said, it's your fault, right? You're an old man now, you're just teaching, you have no worry in the world. This is a young boy and the only person who spoiled him is you. He hears you and he stops going to work and he comes and he sits with you instead and then Abu Hanifa began to support him. But look at the you know the way that Abu Hanifa picks out someone, sees someone, sees his potential and he becomes uh, one of the greatest scholars of his time. Abu Yusuf will grow up and Abu Hanifa actually says this. It said that once Abu Yusuf became so ill that they thought that he may pass away and Abu Hanifa said that if indeed this young man passes away much of the knowledge will be lost. Right. In other narrations, it said that Abu Hanifa said that I wished and I was hoping that this young man would take my place after me. And Allah Azzawajal cured Abu Yusuf. So he does become, go on to become that great scholar. He becomes Qadi al-Quda. Right? He becomes the, uh, the chief judge of the Abbasids to the extent that Harun al-Rashid gives him that place. And so Abu Yusuf, because he's the chief judge, he appoints other judges and he teaches the fiqh that he learned. Even though Abu Yusuf learned from more than uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, he learned from others as well. But he spreads the knowledge of Abu Hanifa. That's one of the reasons why Imam Abu Hanifa, even to today, his madhab is one of the most widespread in the Muslim world. Where does that come from? It comes from a beautiful story of a scholar seeing potential in a young boy, a child, and helping them and supporting them through generosity, through the generosity of patience and and support and help and so on and sacrifice and Allah Azza wa Jal then blesses Imam Abu Yusuf rahimahullahu ta'ala and so Imam Abu Yusuf rahimahullahu ta'ala then becomes the great scholar that he becomes and he spreads his knowledge everywhere and he becomes from the great scholars of Islam that we know of today so um, that is an example right it's one of the nicest examples that you will probably find of this regard but there are many others as well that you will find in the books of of, of the of the biographies of the scholars. The point here being, however, the importance of that generosity as an attribute, as a quality of a teacher, but also as a quality of student. Because just as the teacher needs to be uh, generous, likewise the students needs to be generous. You have to be generous in terms of your patience, your understanding of the teacher. Every teacher has you know different attributes. They have different personalities. They have different ways in which they teach. They have they have positives and negatives. And if you as a student can't be generous in your ability to take from that teacher, be patient with them, take from their strengths and overlook some of their weaknesses, then you won't go very far in terms of your seeking of knowledge, right? And, and, it's, and that's why it's mentioned by uh, Mu'tamir ibn Sulaiman, one of the scholars of the past, a beautiful narration of his that he used to say that I used to go to Imam al-Hasan al-Basri, Hasan al-Basri is from the great Imams of the Tabi'een, from the students of the companions. He said that I would go to him to listen hadith, to listen from him hadith and he would only be able to narrate two or three before he would break down crying and then i would go to ibn sirin muhammad ibn sirin also from the great scholars of the tabi'in 
and he would narrate many hadith whilst he would be laughing and tears would come from his eyes from laughter. Look at the two different approaches. Both of them are teaching a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, but both of them are teaching in their own respective style and every speaker has that style so long as that knowledge is sound, authentic knowledge based on the principles of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, then people's personalities and their quirks and their different demands and so on are something which differ from person to person. That ability to have that generosity of spirit helps both the teacher but it also helps the student as well. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Ta'ala, he says that when Allah Azza wa Jal repeats this command to read Read and your Lord is the most generous. It is to show the importance of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent to us. And that is what Allah Azza is commanding us to read. And that is the reading of the Quran, right? Reading of revelation in general. And Allah Azza says that He is Al Akram, He goes on to say, the most generous. Because Al Akram means the one who gives without expecting anything in return. Nor does he even wait for anything to come. But he gives and he gives and he gives. Right? Allah is Al-Akram. The, the most generous one is the one who gives, not asking for anything in return, but rather he doesn't even expect anything to come from that person in return. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his generosity is shown, as Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin and others are saying here, it is shown through the revelation that he gave to us, the guidance that he has given to us subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is nothing that is more generous that Allah Azza wa has given to us after having created us and allowing us to exist than that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't leave us to find our own way towards salvation. That Allah Azza wa didn't leave us without any guidance. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't leave us without knowing whether we should go right or left or forward or backwards without knowing what it is that we should be doing. So therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah Azza wa gave us creation or he created us but then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from his generosity he gave us the knowledge as well and that shows you the surah really highlights to us the importance of knowledge right? and how knowledge equates to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's generosity but also Allah azza wa mentions elsewhere in the Quran that it is from his mercy right one of the things that you see in terms of guidance that Allah azza wa mentions in the story for example of the people of the cave Right, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to it being a mercy. Because when you have knowledge, it is a form of mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To know how to worship your Lord, to know what pleases your Lord, that is mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why as the scholars mention, that this is one exam that Allah has already given you answers to. Right? An exam usually is where you have to study and study and study, but you don't know what's going to come on the test paper. You don't know if you memorized everything or revised everything or went over everything. They may catch you out in your exam with the two or three things that you thought would never come on. Right? You never, you know, I remember, um, you know, just on a side point, uh, one of the exams that I had to do in, in, um, in the Islamic University of Medina, in the subject we were doing was Qada, which is, uh, you know, judiciary, learning how to become a judge, law. And uh, there's different types of, of, of subjects of fiqh, right? So you have fiqh, which is the study of fiqh itself, and then usul al-fiqh, the principles of fiqh and qawaid fiqhiyya. One of the subjects that you do is qada, and qada basically means learning how to become a judge, right? It's like judge training, because there are etiquettes that a judge has to have in terms of the way that they listen, in terms of... And the scholars have written works on this, uh, you know, on, on this. Ibn Qayyim, ta'ala, has one famous one, but others as well, Mawardi and others, they wrote books on this topic. I remember that an exam that we had, 
and the, and this teacher was known to be to be strict. I still remember him. May Allah subhanahu wa taala keep him safe. Uh, one of the things that I remember from him is that he had a reputation of being strict. So we studied so hard for that exam. Studied so hard. The first, I think, five questions that he asked in the paper were all to do with the print and edition of the book that we were studying. That was our main source of text. The one thing that we never thought that he would ask was what year was the book published? What edition is it? Right? Who, uh, you know, who was the, the uh, I don't know, whatever. He was asking specific questions, how many pages in the book. So all the stuff that you thought he would never ask. But it just shows to you that exams will always catch you out, right? And sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do. Sometimes you pass, sometimes you fail. Sometimes you pass with, with high marks and sometimes you pass with a low mark. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in this test exactly what the answer is and exactly how to stay away from failure. But the difficulty of that exam or this test that we have is how difficult it is to stay on track and to remember what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us and its importance and to take away every other temptation and destruction that shaitan places upon us. So Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin rahimahullah ta'ala says that Allah azza wa mentions within these first three verses the two, two, of his greatest, uh, two of his greatest blessings and favors upon us. The first is the mercy of our creation. Right? And that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us, but that Allah Azza wa Jal number two didn't just leave us without any type of knowledge, but that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us revelation. He gave us knowledge, and it is through that knowledge that we come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Iqra' wa rabbukal akram. The name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al akram, it is from the names of Allah Azza wa Jal. And it is similar, or its root word comes from karam, right, which basically means generosity. And the name of Allah Azza wa Jal Al-Kareem is similar to it in meaning. Al-Akram though is Sigat Af'al, which basically means a, uh, a higher level of generosity. Kareem is one who is generous. Al-Akram is the one who is the most generous. There is no one more generous than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is because often when we give, we expect something in return. Even when you don't really expect something in return, meaning that you don't want something physically back, you don't expect payment. At the very least, we expect some type of gratitude. We expect someone to say thank you, to make dua for you. Right? One of the people that one of the groups of people that we are most generous towards are our family members. If you're a parent, the generosity that you uh, show towards your children is a generosity where you don't necessarily expect them to pay you or to give you something. But one of the things that you do expect, even if it's not something which you outwardly acknowledge, but it's something that we all expect within us, is that a time will come when they will repay that generosity towards us in our old age. If Allah gives us that ability, or if we become sick, may Allah keep us all safe. If we become feeble, then there will be people who will look after us, right? people who will look after our affairs, people who will show us the same care and love that we showed and kindness that we showed to them in young age. Right? And that's something which we do expect even though it's a long term and even though it's not necessarily monetary in its form. But it's a type of uh, payback that you want in terms of character, in terms of dealing, in terms of someone's personality. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives, however, He gives without any ex- such expectations. And Allah's revelation is for everyone, whether they believe or they don't believe, whether they accept or they don't accept. Allah gave it freely. To everyone and Allah tells us and he keeps giving those reminders over and over again per chance that someone may pay heed and so Al-Imam Al-Bayhaqi in his book on Allah's names and attributes he says Al-Akramu Kathirul Karam 
the, the meaning of the name Al-Akram is the one who is excessive in his generosity. And the one who is benevolent to all of his creation. And Al-Khattabi rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, The most generous of all of those who show generosity. لا يوازينه كريم No one can be as generous as him. ولا يعادينه فيه نظير And there is no one that can even uh, come up to that level. Abu Hayyan, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, he says concerning this name, Al-Akram, صفة تدل على المبالغة في الكرم Al-Akram is a term that shows excessiveness in generosity. إذ كرمه يزيد على كل كرم Because Allah's generosity, generosity is above every other type of generosity. يُرْعِمُ بِالنِّعَمِ الَّتِي لَا تُحْصَى He gives without expecting. He gives so much that you cannot enumerate, enumerate his blessings. وَيَحْلُمُ عَلَى الْجَانِ And then Allah is patient and forbearing with the one who sins. وَيَقْبَلُ التَّوْبَةِ And Allah accepts repentance. وَيَتَجَاوَزُ عَنِ السَّيِّئَةِ And Allah forgives people's sins. And the Shaykh uh, Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di Rahimahullah Ta'ala said Al-Akram is the one who is kathiru sifati wasi'uha The one who has many great attributes and he has them all in the most complete and perfect form Kathiru al-karami wal-ihsan wasi'ul jud And he is the one who has great generosity and benevolence One who is extremely giving in terms of his of his blessing subhanahu wa ta'ala Ibn Taymiyyah Rahimahullah Ta'ala he says in his tafsir of these verses, Allah describes himself as being one who is generous. And he is the one who is the most generous after he told us that he uh, that he created us. And then, so therefore showing that Allah created us in order that he may bestow some of his blessings upon us. And he says, And the term al-karam, generosity, is a term in Arabic that shows everything that is good and praiseworthy about the one that you are describing. لا يراد به مجرد العطاء عطاء. He says it doesn't just mean giving. It's not just about giving. بل العطاء من تمام معناه. But rather giving is just from the completion of the definition. It is a part of the definition of generosity. To give is part of generosity. Otherwise, Al-Karam refers to every type of praiseworthy attribute and every type of goodness that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, goodness of giving, the fact that Allah azawajal veils our sins, the fact that Allah is patient with us, all of this goes back to the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Al-Akram. And that is why it is the name that Allah azawajal chose because within it isn't just the issue of giving and the issue of giving blessings, but rather Allah azawajal mentions within it everything else that we benefit from in terms of His many blessings subhanahu wa ta'ala that he bestows upon us. So inshallah, I think that's a good place to stop for this week at the end of verse number three. If there's any questions, let's take a few and then inshallah ta'ala we can conclude. So Sumaira uh, had a question. Do we know what qualities Imam Buhani for recognizing Qadi Abu Yusuf at such an age? What makes these three or four stand out from so many students he must have taught? Uh, so generally the attributes of students of knowledge that, spread out, that stand out is the intelligence, it is their uh, determination, it is their effort that they put in, that they dedicate themselves fully to that knowledge that they're seeking. And when you see someone who puts in that time and effort and they have sincerity and they put in that determination, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses them in their efforts. And that's what the scholars have always looked at, especially in their young students. They see those that are very astute and very, very serious about studying and very determined to do so because it is a difficult path to take they're willing to make that sacrifice and then they see within them, you know, that those types of attributes that they then help to inshallah ta'ala nurture.
Abdul Ghaffar asks, if I'm reading the Quran in Hafs, are there any words or letters in the Quran that I need to read in a different Qiraat and what are they? If I'm reading the Quran in Hafs, are there any words or letters in the Quran that I need to read in a different Qiraat and what are they? Not that you have to read. If you're reading in Hafs, you read all of the Quran in Hafs, if that's what you're referring to. The different Qiraat will be where you are uh, you are reading only in that Qiraat. So for example, you're reading only in Warsh, so then you read in Warsh, you don't read in Hafs, you change to the rules of Tajweed, the Warsh and the wording changes that Warsh has. Likewise Qarun, likewise Susi, likewise Khalaf and Hamza and, and so on and so forth. But if you're reading just in Hafs, then you read in Hafs in terms of Tajweed and in terms of words. Warda asks, what is the stance then on taking payment for teaching Quran? So the stance on taking payment to teach of the Qur'an, even though there is an issue of difference of opinion, but the strongest of those opinions, and Allah knows best, is that it is permissible. So long as that is not the primary intention, the primary intention of any act of worship, be that Qur'an, be that teaching knowledge, be that, for example, making hajj, if that happens to be your business, you're in the hajj industry, is to worship Allah first and foremost, but at the same time to have a secondary intention where you happen to benefit from that through payment or through other types of benefits that may occur, so long as that doesn't overcome you, that doesn't become the reason and your only reason to do so, and it doesn't it doesn't become the, the only thing that motivates you, then there's something which is allowed. And the Prophet وسلم, allowed those companions in the hadith of uh, of the companion who went and he recited Surah Fatiha upon the uh, leader of a tribe who was stung by some type of insect and was in pain. He said, I will read over you. And he recited over Surah Fatiha, but by the, on the condition that you give us payment, and he took from payment a number of sheep. The Prophet ﷺ told him to also give him a share of that sheep as well. And so the Prophet ﷺ allowed him to take payment. So taking payment is allowed, right? And that's the same as whether you're teaching Quran, or you're an Imam, or you're a Sheikh, or you're, for example, uh, you know, doing something else. Uh, even though it's something which, if a person can avoid, clearly that's better because they just go out of that grey issue. But at the same time, the reality of many people's situation is that this is their job and this is their livelihood. And in order for them to be able to dedicate themselves full time to it, then they need that type of payment. Uh, and actually one of the good ways, and this sometimes seems counterintuitive, but the better you pay someone sometimes on a job is the less they seem to be dependent on that money as well. Whereas if they're always constantly fighting for every pound and penny, then sometimes that, that can corrupt a person's intention even more. And Allah Azza knows best. So Jazakumullah Khairan, inshaAllah Ta'ala, we're going to uh, pause here for this week and then inshaAllah Ta'ala, I will be with you again, bithnillah Ta'ala, next week for our continuation of Suratul Alaq. Barakallahu feekum, wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.